Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 and verses 20 through 26. It can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Well, we are today continuing in our series called Who is God, where we are each week looking at one of the attributes, the characteristics of the God of the Christian Bible. Who is God? And before we take a look at today's passage, let's pause together and let's pray because we need God's help, don't we? Let's pray for his help. God, we thank you that you are present. As we sang earlier, we know that you are with us, surrounding us with goodness and mercy. We pray that you would now penetrate our hearts, that you'd remove any resistances to your word, that we would see you for who you are, Jesus, that we would see you, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we would know you, every person here. Please help us to have a genuine encounter with the truth of your word, and the God of the universe, and that every person here would walk away today saying that that was true. God was really here. We pray for that, and we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the other day, while taking a walk with my kids, uh, we passed by a construction site. And not really recognizing what he saw in all the chaos and the construction, Jeremiah turned to me and he asked, Daddy, what's that? And I replied, well, that's the foundation of the building. What's a foundation? He responded, it's when the builders pour concrete deep into the ground so that you can build a strong house on top of it, I explained. Uh, do we have a foundation in our house, he asked, which I realized was a quite reasonable question. 
even though the answer seems obvious to me and to you, because, you know, it's possible for something to be crucial where everything depends upon it, like the foundation of a house, even though you barely know it's there. That's how it is with the doctrine of the Trinity. Crucial to the nature of God as that's revealed to us in the Bible. Everything in Christianity depends upon it. And yet even a seasoned Christian might barely know it's there. Who is God? God is a Trinity. You might have heard that word before, Trinity, but what does that even mean? And why does it even matter? The passage we're looking at today from the Gospel of John gives us some insight. It's the night before Jesus was crucified and he is praying. As verse 1 states clearly, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. What? did he pray? In the first five verses, he prays for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his 12 disciples, though we're not going to be looking at that portion of the passage. Then finally, in verses 20 to 25, Jesus prays for all of his followers who will believe in him, including many of you here today. And in this passage, while Jesus' main point isn't necessarily to teach us about the nature of God, if we listen closely to what he says, we can actually learn a lot about the Trinity. After all, Jesus is praying to God. And yet, as the Gospel of John has repeatedly explained throughout this book, Jesus himself is God. So, is he praying to himself? Or is he praying to someone else? The answer is found in the mystery of the triune God. So let's just address these two questions. What is the Trinity? And why does it matter? So first, what is it? Second, why does it matter? So what is the Trinity? You might have noticed the word Trinity is actually a combination of tri and unity, triunity. According to the Christian Bible, God is three and God is one. He's one being, one God, but comprised of three persons. And let me break this down a little bit further. Again and again, the Bible states clearly that there is only one true God. For example, in Isaiah 45, God himself makes the dramatic claim, I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. This understanding of God's nature is reiterated again and again in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, for example, reads this. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. You might have noticed in our passage, in verse 3, that it echoes this belief. When Jesus prays, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true 
God. And so there is one God, and yet the Bible also tells us that somehow, mysteriously, incredibly, this one God is also three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which is why in places like Matthew 28, verse 19, we hear Jesus tell his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, a passage which you hear cited at the end of our services as a benediction very frequently, you hear this, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout this passage that we're studying, John 17, Jesus directs his prayer, you might have noticed, to the Father. This is a name that he uses five times in verses 1 and 5, 21, 24, and 25. Father, the hour has come. Father, glorify me in your presence, and so on. And twice in verse 1, Jesus refers to himself as the Son. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The Bible is clear that all three members, all three persons of the Trinity, are eternal, with no beginning and no end. In verse 5, Jesus clearly indicates that he, the Son of God, existed from before time began. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. The Bible is clear, too, that all three members of the Trinity are fully God and equally God. You are in me, the Son says to the Father in verse 21, and I am in you. Or, as the old creeds put it, the three persons of the Trinity are the same in substance and nature and equal in power and glory. It also means that each of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, have different roles in providing salvation for sinners like you and me. The, the Father, not the Spirit, was the one who sent Jesus into the world to redeem sinful people. Uh, the Son, and not the Father or the Spirit, became a human being to die on the cross for our sins as our human representative in the courtroom of heaven. And the Spirit, not the Father and not the Son, is the one who applies the death and the resurrection of Christ to each of us personally and gives us spiritual life. And these distinct roles are, are hinted at various points in this passage, right? In verse 2, Jesus says that the Father granted him authority over all people and that the Son gives eternal life. In verse 3, the Father is the one who sent the Son into the world to do what in verse 4 he describes as the work that you, Father, gave me to do. 
These different roles that each of the members of the Trinity have distinct and yet unified is precisely the reason why it's no exaggeration to say that there is no Christianity without the Trinity. That there's no gospel, no good news for sinners apart from the collaborative divine work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But let's be clear about this too. But when the Bible tells us that God is comprised of three distinct persons, what this does not mean is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three gods. No, they are one God. Nor does it mean that the Father, Son, and Spirit are just different names for the same divine person. Nor does it mean that God simply puts on a different mask in different situations or that he just reveals himself in three different ways. Instead, by describing each of the members of the Trinity as a person, we mean that each is distinct from the others. They have separate personal identities. They know and they acknowledge each other. They even talk to each other, right? Just like the Son is now doing in this passage with the Father in prayer. The three members of the Trinity share a relationship with each other. They even glorify each other. We're told in verse 1, glorify your son, Jesus prays, that your son may glorify you. They are persons. They even love each other. In verse 26, Jesus speaks to the Father about the love that you have for me. In fact, listen to verse 5. Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And in verse 24, you loved me before the creation of the world. And listen closely. This reveals a most incredible divine secret. That since before the beginning of time, from eternity past, we're told that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been giving glory to each other. They have been loving one another. They have been serving each other. They've been finding infinite delight and joy in one another. You see, Jesus is revealing to us here that in his very essence... God is an explosion of love and service and glory and joy. And that is precisely because God is not only one, but also three. We're starting to get a glimpse, aren't we, of not just the facts about the Trinity, but the wonder of the Trinity it boggles the mind. It stretches our human capacity to understand this concept. Why should we be surprised, though? We're trying to get our minds around God. Trying to get human minds wrapped around this grand mystery can often feel impossible, maybe even frustrating for many of us. I mean, how can there be three persons without being three separate beings? 
It's really hard to understand because it requires us to think about personhood in a way that we've never imagined. I mean, get this. It's almost like going up to a square who had, use your imaginations with me now, going up to a square who had lived his entire life on a flat piece of paper. And you approach the square and you say to him, look, you're never going to believe this. What? The square replies and you say, there's a shape out there. It's called a cube. Never heard of it. It's a shape made of, get this, six squares. To which the square replies, oh, no big deal, so it's six shapes. And you reply, no, 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 it's, it's, it's one shape, but it's made of six squares connected, not this way, but this way too. And the square replies to you, whatever. Just like we often say, one God, one being, and three persons, whatever. And listen, here's how Christian thinker and author C.S. Lewis uses that same analogy to help explain the Trinity. Listen up. On the human level, he writes, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat sheet of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we who do not live on that level cannot imagine it. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we cannot fully conceive a being like that, just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube, whatever. But we can get a sort of faint notion of it, and when we do, we are then for the first time in our lives getting some positive idea, however faint, of something super personal. Something more than a person. It is something that we could never have guessed, and yet once we've been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it because it fits in so well with all the things we know already, writes C.S. Lewis. If human beings, friends, are personal beings, why would we be surprised to find that God is somehow more personal than we are? He is super personal, super personal, divinely so, and that's because God is a trinity. We're packing in a lot of angles to this, explaining this doctrine, and we can talk about it some more during our Q&A, but I want to move to this next part. Why does it matter? For all that we've said about God being one and God being three, one God, one being, and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does this matter? Well, our passage offers us five different practical implications of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
community, creation, invitation, unity, and servanthood. So let's take a look, and this is how we'll close. Number one, community. Community. If God is a trinity, friends, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling in perfect communion with each other for all of eternity, then that means that ultimate reality consists of relationships. Because the essence of God is relationship. And if before the world was ever made, God had no relationships, and therefore no one to love if God was only one, could we ever say that love could actually be an essential part of God's nature? No. But God is eternally three. He's a divine community. Again, Jesus says to the Father in verse 24, You loved me before the creation of the world. Therefore, God is love. God in his very nature is a relationship. God is a community. And here's why that matters. Because you, every single one of you, are made in the image of God. Which means you were made for relationships. It's part of your human design. You were made to be in community, not to exist in isolation. That's why the hunger for relationships and personal connection is one of the deepest, most powerful longings of the human heart. And some of you know this all too well. Some of you are here today starving for community. Maybe that's why you came here today. Some of you are starving for a community and you don't even know it. You don't even know it. It's a void that maybe you're trying to fill with other things. Filling it with work. Filling it with alcohol. Not knowing that it actually is a void that's meant to be filled with relationships, and most especially, a relationship with God. And so here's an invitation to fulfill your God-given design. Get into community. Sign up for a neighborhood group. Join a mom's group. Get to the men's fellowship breakfast and don't watch the bangles. Register for our fall retreat. Our fall retreat coming up at the end of October, you know, we're going to be learning about the topic of friendship that weekend. I mean, dear friends, do you hear it? Do you hear the groans in your own heart? Friendship, especially a friendship with God, is the most important thing in your life. Because God is a community. Because God is a trinity. Number two, second implication, creation. Here's another implication of the Trinity. Why did God create the world? Have you ever wondered, why did God make all the things that we see? Why did he make the universe? Why did he make you and me? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us why it wasn't because he needed praise, love, or happiness from us. Because God already had all of that. As Jesus tells us in verse 5, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exchanged infinite love and glory before the world began. 
So creation, this universe, you were not a divine necessity. You do not exist to prop up the self-esteem of God. Creation then, the reason for which you were made, could only then be a, be a true act of self-giving love. Why did God create the world, to ask it again, not to get love and happiness from us, but rather to share love and happiness with us? Behold the generosity of your triune God, believing that God is three in one and one in three, absolutely changes the way that you see the reason for which you exist before God. Number three, invitation, community, creation, invitation. God's goal is to bring you into the very life and communion of the Trinity. That's why in verse 21, Jesus prays to the Father, may they also be in us doesn't just say, let's just give them some good things, some blessings. He says, may they be in us. Let's include them in us. And in verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you hear what Jesus said there? From all of eternity... The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been pouring into each other mutually, eternally. They've been pouring into each other unimaginable loads of infinite love and joy and glory. And here's what Jesus tells us. The triune God is now pulling you into the glory of their eternal relationship. What's at the heart of the Christian faith? It's an invitation for undeserving sinners to be wondrously caught in the crossfire of the eternal love and joy shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is how Jesus here defines salvation. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not even simply discovering the forgiveness of your sins and the cross of Christ. It's through those things being brought into the eternal, infinite communion of the Trinity. Get your minds and hearts around that. A few weeks ago, my family got some time at a beach on the eastern shore, and our kids loved just jumping into the water as kids do and then running out into the waves and screaming with delight and sometimes getting knocked down around by the rushing water and then again and then again and hit repeat and then again and again because why? The waves never stop, do they? Just a picture that entered my mind recently thinking about how it's no different to be brought into the Trinity's internal, eternal love and joy, where wave after endless waves of divine love and joy wash over you because you've been brought into the communion of God himself. Dear child of the triune God, 
If you've embraced Jesus, if you know that you are in Christ, if you bear the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dear child of this triune God, do you hear verse 23, where Jesus says to the Father concerning those who believe in him, you have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you hear that? Did you know that? The Father loves you with the same eternal love with which he loves his son. A lot of us are familiar with the idea of the love of God, which we'll study in coming weeks. But I really think it's true that too many of us believe in the love of God, but believe that what we receive is a second-rate and class B kind of love. That he has this love and maybe he gives us some version of it and yet it's not the real thing. After all, I couldn't really deserve, I couldn't really have earned it. And that's the truth. You don't and you can't. Not the sinner that you are. But this is divine grace. This is the gift of God. That you've got class A love in the bank. That you've got a God that gives to you only first-rate, eternal, infinite love. That the Father loves you with the same eternal love with which he loves his very own Son. Hallelujah. You better believe it. You better believe it. Fourthly, unity. Unity, the Trinity, means that we who bear the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are called to reflect God's triunity in our relationships. We're called to unity. Jesus prays for this explicitly in verses 21 through 23, right? I pray also that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. And in verse 22, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete Unity, unity. What does this mean to demonstrate this visible unity among Jesus' followers? I think, first of all, it means doing a better job of partnering with other churches in the neighborhood. Uh, knowing that we might have different roles, not unlike the three members of the Trinity, right? But still working together for the common purpose of shining the light of Christ to our neighbors. Partnering with other churches, other Christians. What does visible unity among Jesus' followers look like? Well, I think it also looks like refusing to treat the public criticism of fellow Christians as a sport, which has become all too common and all too even faddish and trendy these days. You see it especially in social media. You hear it in conversations among Christians as well. I am guilty as charged. Christians need to stop bashing other Christians or constantly rolling their eyes at the church. After all, that's your family that you're talking about. Flawed though it may be. And of course, this doesn't mean refusing to call people to repentance or speaking the truth in love when needed. But you know the difference when you meet it in constructive love to bring a person and restore them back to the way of truth and the grace of God. Unity, I think, means ceasing to critique and criticize Christians in the church 
as sport. I think it also means understanding that this is part of our witness to the world, our unity. Jesus couldn't be clear in verses 22 and 23. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. People will see how Christians show grace and understanding one to another and thereby be convinced that the grace of God is real, that the forgiveness of God is real, that the Trinity is real. People will see the Trinitarian love of God reflected in the rich, humble, joyful, visible unity shared among Christians. And of course, it needs to be said that this Trinitarian unity in the church is not the same thing as uniformity, is it? Pretending that we're all the same or demanding that we all be the same. You know, the Trinity, one God, three persons, is an awesome divine affirmation of the glory of unity in the midst of diversity, isn't it? One God, three persons. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung clarifies this helpfully he writes if God exists in three distinct persons who all share the same essence then it is possible to hope that God's creation may exhibit stunning variety and individuality while still holding together in a genuine oneness so God in our unity is calling us to forge a unity in the church in the midst of of diversity of personality, and we have a full range of types of personalities in this room, don't we? In the midst of the diversity of political persuasion, and we have a great mix here as well, and the diversity of ethnic and racial and economic backgrounds, this is why that unity becomes glorious, not because we're naturally the same, but because we're naturally different, brought together in the unity of the Trinity. Community, creation, invitation, unity, and finally, servanthood. To close with this, we saw it already. According to Jesus, what were the Father, Son, and Spirit doing for all eternity? Loving each other with an eternal love. Praising each other. Glorifying one another. No one demanding glory from the other, but giving glory to the other. I mean, do you hear that? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, they're essentially being servants of one another. Dear friends, servanthood is divine. Theologian John Frame writes this. The concept of mutual glorification suggests an important way in which Christians can be like the members of the Trinity. We, too, are called to defer to one another in this way, to glorify one another, to be disposable to one another's purposes, that is, to love one another as God loved us. In other words, the Trinity means... That relinquishing your rights, that seeking someone else's interests before your own, 
that giving up your own power for the benefit of another to lift them up, servanthood is at the very heart of the universe because it's at the very heart of the essence of God. So who do you need to serve this week? You as an image of the Trinity. Nowhere, of course, do we see the serving nature of God more clearly than in the cross of Christ. We hear these words in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. This is an amazing prayer. You know why? Because everywhere in John's gospel, the hour refers to the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus, you know, died a death of unimaginable suffering. Suffering for our sins in our place for our salvation. Remember the one, the Son, who had enjoyed for all eternity infinite love and eternal joy and delight and communion with Father and Spirit, lost it all, suffered infinite pain and infinite horror as he suffered hell on the cross in our place. Which means then that Jesus is praying that this nightmare on Calvary would be a window into the greatness of the glory of God. In fact, the ultimate revelation of the greatness of God. And it was. But it was a window into the servanthood of God, the sacrifice of God, because this was the ultimate event of servanthood and sacrifice. It was indeed the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. You want glory? Serve like Jesus. You want glory? Receive the servanthood of Jesus, his death and resurrection on the cross for you. As someone has put it, there's no greater glory than to give up your glory, to give glory to someone else. Let me say it again. There's no greater glory than to give up your glory, to give glory to someone else. That's true servanthood. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been doing as a trinity for all of eternity, because servanthood is at the very heart of God. And if you're in communion with this God of the Trinity, is it also this servanthood at the heart of your heart? Don't you want to understand this Trinity? Aren't we just only beginning to unpack it and to see all of its implications? Don't you want to get it? But, of course, the goal isn't just to intellectually understand the doctrine, right? The goal is to press in and press it in deeper, more deeply into your heart until it begins to impact your everyday life. And as difficult as it may be to understand this, understand it, it doesn't mean that you have to have a theology, a theology degree or tons of education or even intelligence for you to understand God as Trinity, just ask Nikki Cruz. Nikki Cruz was a hard-hearted teenage leader of a violent gang in New York City in the 1950s. A young preacher 
developed a relationship with Nikki and told him the simple message that Jesus loved him and would never stop loving him. And so how did Nikki respond the first time he heard this from the preacher? Well, he slapped him and he threatened to kill him. That's how hard a case he was. But eventually, long story short, long glorious story short, Nikki Cruz was dramatically converted to the Christian faith. And years later, in 1976, Nikki Cruz wrote a book about the attribute of God that had become the most important element of his Christian growth, and it was entitled The Magnificent Three. And in it, Cruz wrote these words. Something has emerged in my walk with God that has become the most important element of my discipleship. It has become the, most, it has become the thing that sustains me, that feeds me, that keeps me steady when I'm shaky. I've come to see God, to know him, to relate to him as three in one. God as Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. And the ability to relate to God in that way is the single most important fact of my Christian growth. What I'm describing is something different from merely believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. I've always believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. But I had never experienced God personally as three in one. It was at first merely a doctrine in which I believed, but now it has become a truth of everyday life. Oh, that God would give us grace to make the reality of the Trinity a crucial element of our discipleship. An aspect of God's nature that sustains us, that feeds us, that keeps us steady, that keeps you steady when things are shaky. And that becomes a truth of everyday life. Don't you want to know God as Trinity? For some of us, maybe that journey begins today. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we want to know you. And we want to live in light of you. Show yourself to us. Help us to see you in all your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.